The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy trends, innovations, and debates. Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio 1500 AM. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guests on Off the Shelf are Angela Stiles. She is a partner at Bracewell LLP. Jonathan Erney, a partner at Shepherd Mullen, and John Etherton, the president of Etherton and Associates. And today we're going to be talking about Section 846, the e-commerce provision of last year's NDAA. And GSA OMB are in the midst of implementation. There's, I guess, phase two. And But first of all, guys, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you, Roger. Uh, um, this should be a lot of fun. I got the brain trust here. For us or the people listening? <laughs> uh, for both. Oh, wow. Hopefully. It'd hopefully be fun for everybody. But let's start first just talking about Section 846 and how we got to where we are, just some of the <laughs> legislative history background on it. And I'm going to turn to you, Jonathan Etherton. Uh, I'm going to have to be careful today, aren't <laughs> I? All right. Okay. Go ahead. Go um, ahead, John. You can. Yeah, thanks. Um, I, this is a subject that the House Armed Services Committee took a real interest in. Uh, starting back in 2016, um, they've been in the habit of forming their acquisition policy bills, uh, usually starting in the fall preceding the spring markups. And they were uh, looking at some different ideas on how to basically recreate uh, for specifically the Department of Defense, because that's where they first started talking about it. Um, a buying experience that would be similar to what people have, you know, through various e-commerce portals, Amazon, whatever, and whether how feasible that could be. And they, they tried to sketch something out that was fairly simple conceptually. Uh, in their initial drafts, which they started th uh, throwing out for people to review in the spring of uh, last year, um, they talked about basically anything that worked its way through the process of an e-commerce portal into the hands of a government customer to the extent that there were there was somebody other than the government customer who were, was buying the product or had bought the product, essentially you would have something that would be de deemed commercial. Uh, all of your competition requirements would be uh, deemed to have been met, and essentially you could take something that already exists as a buying process, and rather than having the government have the expense of maintaining or creating a process, you could have something that essentially would be adopted from the commercial side. Uh, as, it, it is intact as possible so that they could actually go forward with all the existing terms and conditions. Obviously, the government buying process is unique. There are a number of special uh, process requirements that you have, due process for people who are interested in selling things to the government. Um, you have a number of government unique requirements that apply to acquisitions and you know things that so-called socioeconomic provisions and other things where by American Act, by American this, Act, yeah. uh, you know, small business, uh, some of these small business programs where people feel that the taxpayers are funding a system and that system ought to benefit social goals more broadly in the country. It ought not to be a strictly a business transaction uh, system. So the real question has been, you know, how do you incorporate some of those things and yet provide a buying experience that for individuals working in the government would be very similar to what they experience in their personal lives. So that was, uh, there was a lot of debate back and forth, and I think the big challenge has been to see 
to what extent these government unique requirements, which were not really changed by this, uh, could be met with a system that was essentially designed for the commercial marketplace and bringing that those characteristics with intact as possible into into this process. And so I think that was where the real challenge was. And I think as they got into the process last year over the summer, after the House Armed Services Committee marked up their bill and they were in conference, I think a lot of these issues really got fleshed out. And um, what you have now is a, is a process which would envision several phases and certain times and reports and something that would proceed, uh, I think, uh, in a very deliberate process to see how far we could get with the whole idea. So, uh, Angela, let's just start just talking about what A46 real, you know, says itself. Can you talk about some well, of the sure. key provisions? I, I think a key part of this, too, is just the fact that there's this widening gap between how companies buy, how the private sector buys, and how the government buys. And so what you're seeing here is... Uh, you know, question from Congress. I think you see it at DOD, you see it throughout the government. A lot of people saying, how do we narrow that gap? We had a promise of FASA and FARA and commercial items and getting rid of the paperwork and the certifications and the requirements when the government's buying something that's commercial in nature. And none of that really came to fruition. And so you're seeing a statutorily written requirement to go out to the marketplace to um, see if there are e-commerce platforms available with a series of implementation steps uh, to take it rather slowly to assess how it should be done, to see what's actually appropriate here. And it's going to take a while to get there. Um, I think what's interesting is that simultaneously in the same authorization, you had an increase to the of the micro-purchase threshold from 3500 um, to 10,000, and I think it is something we'll probably discuss later, is how do you really reconcile those two? Isn't that enough access to uh, commercial items for the federal government without raising all these questions that I think John raised about the socioeconomic programs, Ability One, Buy American Act, Trade Agreements Act, how, do, how does everything fit in here? How do small businesses fit in there? Well, they don't actually <coughs> fit in for purchases under the micro-purchase threshold. Right. You know, I, I think it's, it's probably <coughs> worth saying one of the thing about the, the journey that 846 was on from you know the House version that, that John described to where we are today because it, it was really a, a, a sea change between what we started with and then what we ended up with, right? So what we started with uh, at the, um, the Thornberry Bill was, was really no competition, no terms and conditions, no anything. It was it was as close to commercial, pure commercial mm -hmm. as, as possible at all. And then, and then really the, the change we had when it got to the Senate was that it became more of a, okay, rather than you have to do X, it is you have to figure out how to do X. And, and, I, and I think that's, that's a big difference because that really laid the groundwork for what we've been doing for the last you know, 90 days or, or the, the, the phase one yes. of the GSA OMB process. So it, it pulled back on a lot, at least for now, pulled back on a lot of the things that were in the original 801 Thornberry bill. Right, so you mentioned the 90 days, so um, January 9th, GSA had its uh, industry day um, where they had a series of panel discussions about what, what actually transpires in the commercial marketplace and, and also you know, what the government needs to think about. Um, and then they issued their implementation plan within the 90-day time frame. They made their, that goal, which is commendable. So let's talk a little bit about that implementation plan and I guess, and Jonathan, I'll start with you real quick. Just a couple of the key highlights about the plan. 
I think um, the, the most notable thing about the plan, so let's start with the most notable, which is the least substantive, is that it leaves most of the questions unanswered. And I, I don't say that as a criticism. As I said on that at that wonderful event, it, it's quite understandable why in 90 days you don't have all the answers, but instead you you set forth a lot of questions. So I, I think that's that's first. On on the substantive side, I I, I think you've got to say one of the biggest things that come out of that is the uh, is the recommendation to increase the micro purchase threshold to twenty five thousand. I think the biggest one is the government. You know, the recommendation that they change it to allow a government system. Oh, okay. Okay, <laughs> but, I'm no, sorry. Well, like, no, for no, them we, to we, build we, their own, you know, right. Amazon port- or like portal, whatever. Like a portal. We definitely have portals. That's what it's been called. We cover both I, of those. I, no, that, okay. that, that's, a, that's a fair point. Very significant. <laughs> no, but but in, in fact, let's start with that one then. Because because what's interesting is GSA and OMB, rather than saying what solution they want, they, they posit three, but as we'll explain to you why it's really four, Three potential solutions, and my, my colleagues will make sure I get the terms right. Right, an e marketplace, an e portal, and e commerce. Do I have those three right? It's uh, e commerce, e marketplace, and then e procurement, like oh, a e, buying e, e system, procurement, like right? Yes, right. advantage. But, but then, to to Angela's point, what was most interesting is is their request that GSA be brought back in the game, in a sense, by allowing GSA to create what was referred to as a portal of portals. And I, I agree with you, Angela. That that definitely isn't the top three most important outgrowths of phase one. It's either a Google that they're trying to create or an orbit that they're trying to create. I'm not quite sure which one. Right. The and term I they used was kayak now, yeah. right? The kayak model. Right. And I have uh, lots of questions about that particular provision. And, you know, we're already up on the break. That's a quick already? 10 minutes. Already. Yeah. So when we come back, I'm going to give John Etherton the first sort of question. And it's sort of the big picture question. It seems like some of these legislative proposals, that and the 25, are they consistent with the legislative intent as reflected in Section 846? That's the big picture question. Then I've got some sort of operational questions for these lawyers here about, um, you know, that portal of portals concept. Uh, My guests today are Angela Stiles, Bracewell LLP, Jonathan Ernie from Shepherd Mullen. Man, it's just a mouthful of these three guests. And then Jonathan Etherton from Etherton and Associates. And Jonathan Etherton, I'm going to call you John from now on. And then and then and Jonathan Ernie, you're Jonathan. Okay. Deal. That's a that should work for me. I think Excellent. I can keep you that can, straight. Even you, you can still can call do me that. Angela. Yeah, I can I will do that, Angela. I promise. Okay. <laughs> and we'll be right back. You are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Today, my guests are Angela Stiles from Bracewell LLP, Jonathan Erney from Shepherd Mullen, and John Etherton from Etherton & Associates. And John, uh, when we took the break, uh, we started talking about Portal of Portals. I can get tongue-tied on that. Um, one of GSA's um, you know recommendations with regard to legislative changes and you know, the question I posed was, is this sort of consistent with the overall theme of the language or, or what? It kind of, I think there are some of our observers who are really sort of scratching their heads about what they really were trying to accomplish here. Well, I can't speak for the Hill on what their thinking is on this, but I think that if you read the language, I think you'll see sort of an indication of what their thinking is. And, and I interpret it like this. I think they see this available e-commerce portal world out on the outside that people are using and including government employees in their personal lives. And the real question in their mind is, is there some way that the government, and, and recall that this started out as DOD first, then it went to GSA, 
And so it's it's gradually, you know, broadening. Uh, is there some way that the government, in some fashion, can interface in a meaningful way and get its requirements from those existing e-commerce portals? So that tells me that if there is a good story to be told uh, on the GSA side in favor of a portal of portals approach, which somehow takes the government customer, however, whatever process used to that edge where they, in fact, are standing there interacting with these available e-commerce portals. And I do think that would be consistent with what they what they thought. It may not have been something they imagined, but I don't think it would be inconsistent with their thinking. For me, at least, it wasn't one of my biggest surprises because when I read the initial language, it screamed out to me more or less, we don't like GSA, nor do we trust them to touch this at all. Like I, and I, I don't think I don't think I'm overly exaggerating. No, here. I don't think like, you are. Which is why <laughs> right, I it's not to just say, GSA; it's a government. Right, period. I, right, 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 right. Can right. you name one IT system that the government's built that works well? I mean, that's the way I read it. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, right. I, I agree with you. And so I'm kind of agnostic in a sense on on which of these approaches right. they end up working. Uh, but I was surprised because I did think this flew in the face of what at least seemed to be coming out of the House side. Maybe a little bit less so. The Senate side. Right. So, Angela, just on the concept of portal of portals, can you expand on a, that a little bit about what you think GSA is thinking or what their concept is? Well, I think historically, when the House first started to look at this, you know, they were looking at what we as consumers all use, not necessarily what businesses are using, but we as consumers are all using Amazon on a pretty regular basis. You're seeing other competitors come into the marketplace, whether that's Walmart or Jet or other companies, and so they're trying to be agnostic, and I'm not sure the House really was agnostic when they first started out with these provisions in terms of everybody's using this, why wouldn't we, the federal government, be using this as well? Um, and so I think that's that's why you see this push to say, well, no, you know, this isn't just about buying from Amazon, because I'm not sure the companies that are third-party providers to Amazon or the companies that Amazon buys from are thrilled about it being an Amazon-only solution, if you will. If ahead, I if I can add some some of that, Roger, we seem to be falling in. I don't know if it's a trap or not, but we we seem to be suggesting that the commercial marketplace buys the same way that that I buy at home. But the truth is, our commercial clients actually don't buy that way for the larger purchases. They do things very similar in some circumstances to the government, right. states and localities and commercial enterprises. They they consolidate, they aggregate right. their purchasing, they hold competitions, they leverage volume. Sort of like a little bit like category management, perhaps, well, I, per se. <laughs> and, and a little bit like, even before category management, a little bit like GSA. Yeah. So let's not forget that, that the commercial world actually has taken some lessons learned from the government and adopted some of those practices for itself. So I have a question for any of you guys. So the legislative proposal on portal of portals, as I understand it, is the idea that you go through a potentially a GSA portal that would then lead you out to the other sort of portals, the three, you know, the e-commerce model, I guess, e-marketplace and e-procurement perhaps, and touch those to buy product. Would there be a contract required with the the ultimate commercial portal providers in this case, or not, and then I, and then that goes to some of the other language in the statute that requires certain behaviors on the part of the the e-commerce 
portal providers in terms of protection of data, use of data. Well, there has to be some kind of agreement. I'm not sure it has to be per se a contract where there's right. money exchanging hands, right? But if you're going to participate, these are the requirements for participation um, in the portal and use of data. So more like a CRADA, a Cooperative Research and Development Agreement or some other transaction than per OTA, se. OTA, yeah, yeah, perhaps. <laughs> uh, but something, I mean, there's some kind of agreement that if you're going to participate in this marketplace, this is what it looks like. And we're going to use X engine and X data to filter essentially what the government's going to see as opposed to them coming directly to you. I think that that's probably right. I, I think to, to me, it, it Every agreement's a, a, a contract, so sure. I, I think there's going to be something. Sure. But but what I'm not sure about, I don't know if the portal of portals is supposed to be just to connect individual companies, individual e-commerce platforms, or as you described it, Roger, to connect not only the individual companies, but these other three um, potential systems, yeah. m- models. Like mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know whether they're all in or just pieces are in. Yeah, and I, I had the same reaction. Yeah, I've assumed it's to connect to the portals themselves. Right. But then you have to deal with, okay, you've got a manufacturer's warranty, right, on the uh, you know, on the particular product that's being supplied. So how are you making sure that that entity is going to fulfill the manufacturer's warranty to the federal government? How do you make sure that if they get a broken product that they're going to be able to get it back, that kind of thing? Right, and, and we know, because th- this is, is definitely – at least for Jeff at GSA, Jeff Kosas, his his who is the senior procurement executive, right? Thank you, right? Yeah. His constant and frequent questions at these events are, with whom does the government have privity, right? Who who right. can the government look? And, and th- those are good good questions. Through this approach here, as we've all just kind of suggested, it makes it into an even more complicated question. Do you think that's why you know one of the legislative proposals too is to be to have be able to contract with the portal provider, whatever, whoever it may be, and the supplier as well, sort of simultaneously. They ha- that's one of their legislative fixes. I think, that- it, I think it does relate to this, but I think, I, like I said at your conference, I, I don't think it's any different from what we do now. When an IT software company sells to the government through a reseller, the government enters into a contract with the reseller and the government enters into a contract through the EULA with the OEM. So the government right now enters into dual contracts, mm. and I don't think it's that much different under the proposed approach. So, John, do you think, you know, that, I mean, clearly more has to be, but your thoughts on, is it clear enough what the concept is with regard to the portal portals? Why couldn't they just currently just contract with, you know, e-commerce solutions to, you know, to, to meet the statutory requirements? I don't think it's clear, but I think part of this process it, at least the way I see it is, you know, people are just sort of throwing these things out there and saying that the, the details and some of the issues will be determined in the fir- you know, phases down the road. I, I looked at the requirements in, or what the requests were as far as the legislative changes as more of give us the authority to go in this direction. If you sort of give us the confidence that we have this broad authority to do all these things and that will clarify some of the choices as we go into the next phase. And so that's the way I look at it. I also think they're just making it too hard. At the end of the day, they're making this so hard. If you've got to figure out what privity is there in order to move forward and who you're going to be in privity with and who you're going to go after if something goes wrong, 
we're never going to make any progress. I mean, you've got you to have a smaller sampling here of how this is going to work. Maybe the $25,000 threshold is just fine, and you start there. Maybe the $10,000 threshold is just fine, and you assist right. agencies at understanding how they buy through the existing portals that are out there and make sure they're getting enough competition for below the micro threshold, right? right? And fair pricing. Right. Jonathan, so one of the questions I have, too, is couldn't they just create an e-commerce solution schedule? Yeah, I don't see why they couldn't. I, There's already companies on schedule providing e-commerce yeah. solutions right now. Right. I, I think that they that they don't need any. If, if that's what they want to do, if they if if what they want to do is have some sort of site that makes it easier for a purchaser to look across companies' existing e-commerce platforms, they would be able to meet their competition requirements without any changes to the law or regulation. They have the ability to procure that sort of uh, platform right now. But we wouldn't get to have these fun conferences or radio shows right, because that right. would be easy. I'm trying to figure out what they're, what everybody's thinking. But also, you know what else it does? One of, your, one of my favorite topics is transactional data is already already there, right, as part of the schedule. So, and that's one of the benefits of you know one of the goals of this concept is to get more data, and the schedules already have that capability within it in terms of if you accept it and yeah. agree with it. Okay, we have to take our next break when we come back. We're going to start talking about that micro-purchase threshold increase, proposed increase from 10000 for civilian agencies, 5000 for DOD, up to 25000 for everybody uh, who uses the platforms, right? It's narrowly, that's also an issue. Right. Um, my guests today are Angela Stiles from Bracewell LLP, Jonathan Ernie from Shepherd Mullen LLP, and John Etherton from Etherton & Associates. And you are listening to Off the Shelf on Veteran News Radio, 1500 AM. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Today, my guests are Angela Stiles from Bracewell LLP, Jonathan Erney from Shepherd Mullen LLP, and John Etherton from Etherton & Associates. And we're talking about Section 846, its implementation, key provisions. And, okay, um, you know, during the break, I warned you guys I was going to do this. I'm just going to, you know, the $25,000 proposed increase in the micro-purchase threshold for items purchased through the platforms Whoever gets to the mic first go, can go. Ready, set, go. Wow. Uh, okay. I, Angela, <laughs> I got there. Okay. She gets it because she says wow? <laughs> Absolutely. That's A. It is wow it when is you think wow. about it. <laughs> I think everybody who saw that report on the first day was a little bit taken aback. I think uh, it was a little bit unexpected in the defense authorization that it was going to move up so dramatically from 3500 to 10000 for the civilian agencies. That's almost tripling of it. We have no idea what the ramifications of that move are going to mean. Um, it really, what worries me the most is the lack of transparency for those purchases, right? I mean, you can say anything under $10,000, you shouldn't have any constraints, the government should be able to go out and buy whatever they need, whatever they want, Right. But that also means we, as taxpayers, have no idea what's going on at below $10,000. So to raise it to twenty-five, that is a huge increase in terms of purchases. And I think, you know, there's some real questions about whether it should go up that high before we know what 10 looks like. Go ahead, John. Well, I, I mean, I, I have a hard time disagreeing with that. I mean, I think that was sort of my feeling as well. I was surprised. And the rationale for it didn't really... Jump out at it wasn't me. compelling. It wasn't compelling, but <laughs> yeah. but not to say there might be. It might transpire that there is a rationale. Sure, and it's really yeah. powerful and all that. But it did, like I said, it didn't jump out at me when I when I first saw it. So I think but, it's easier to go to twenty five thousand and to deal with the real issues of the socioeconomic 
um, right. provisions that we have in the law, whether it's Buy American, whether it's Small Business, whether it's Ability One. Trade and Agreements so, Act, Barry Amendment. Right. right. So it's just easier to raise it to $25,000 than to have the really hard conversations about, are these the socioeconomic programs we want to continue with for the long term? I think it would behoove all the parties if in discussing the micro-purchase threshold, you have a fulsome, full conversation and say, okay, if we do this, this is what we're waiving. That's part of the point of the whole this whole process. Make it clear, this is what we're waiving, and then people can make a cost-benefit analysis whether those things should be waived in the name of streamlining or they should not. No, that, that's exactly right. What, and that's what I found. It, th- this is actually the one time at the conference where I thought that the answers were not well thought out by by GSA and OMB. I, I thought most of their answers were very well thought out. But but on this one here, the only reason they really gave, uh, at least the, the one Laura gave, was, well, no, they just want to create the cheese to right. drive the purchasing mice to this platform. And and that that is not a, a well thought out approach, right? There are costs of raising the micro-purchase threshold and there are advantages. I mean, what, what one, one thing that will necessarily change is it will increase the purchase of products from overseas, from China, say. Now, now some of your listeners might think that's a positive. Some might think that's a negative. But the fact is that micro-purchase goes up, Chinese products increase, and, and it should be factored in on one side of the equation or the other. The flip side of that is what is the United States getting in exchange? Sure. That's exactly right. But that's my point. I, again, I'm I, here again, I'm, I'm agnostic as to, as to how policy makers balance these things. Sure. But I am quite, feel very strongly that they should be balanced. And, and you have to do exactly what you said. Like, okay, what will change because of the micro-purchase threshold going up? And we've talked about some. The other one Angela mentioned I think is critical is, is accountability, transparency, and competition goes out the window. And an economist could put a value on that. And right. so, so before we say 25 is right or wrong, and before we start worrying about Jeff Kosas's point that it could even be higher than 25, like let's, let's actually get some data and figure out the cost of the change. Right, and uh, John, so one of the questions too I think people have is this raising the micro-purchase sort of consistent with the the thrust of the government over the last you know five to seven years of category management, strategic sourcing, trying to sort of buy as commercial, large commercial entities do, leveraging requirements to get a better price and then get people to use those vehicles. Well, I think there's a presumption that it will be faster I think sure. because you've got this pre-existing and, and again, I think there's a real value and this gets talked about from time to time, but I don't think people put enough emphasis on it, but I really do think it informs a lot of the thinking. And that is, I think folks really want to give the people coming into the government, whether they're in the military or whether in the civilian agencies, the experience of buying that they have in their non-work life. Um, I, I think there's a real value that people think that that's important to uh, to place on all this. So, right, uh, but I but but, re- but but again, to, to go back to your original point, I, I do think there are these trade-offs, and I think by sort of decentralizing, that has been a big theme. If you look at the acquisition reform provisions in the NDAAs over the last three years, that's been a big theme. It's sort of pushing the decision making down further and further. That's I think part of the narrative with the breakup of the. Uh, Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Technology and Logistics is the idea that you you know devolve those decisions to ever lower 
points in the system. But I, but again, if you do that, then what you give up is the ability to leverage large government buys of things, especially of commercial items or other things, where you might be able to use that to your advantage for price and, and for other things like, my understanding, several of the larger uh, private sector organizations do in their buying. Right. But I think that's the real disconnect, right? To give people the experience that they have themselves, right, as as purchasers in the marketplace, you know, consumers versus businesses. I mean, how many of us an entire year have spent $10,000 on Amazon, much less one purchase? I mean, that's a really big difference. To, be, to allow somebody access um, to a commercial marketplace where you can get things quickly, um, versus what's what's the reality of giving access and what you experience as a consumer versus a business. Do you have thoughts about the idea that, so you're going to have one micro-purchase threshold for sort of open market transactions through the platform, and then the micro-purchase for every other transaction in pre-existing multiple board contracts remains at the you know, ten thousand level. You're getting in again, and or fi- or five thousand or five thousand right. for DOD. And if it's under pre-existing contract, all those government requirements that we've talked about would still apply. It's sort of creating two, like parallel universes of different or non-parallel universes. Right. right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I I, th- I think that's going to be a problem, and it's certainly going to have an impact on the time and money and investment in compliance and infrastructure that not only companies, but government agencies have made adhering to certain rules. I mean, uh, there's there's going to be a lot of collateral, unintended, and potentially expensive consequences as a result of differing rules. Right. Any other thoughts on that? I, I, I hear silence for a second here on the radio. That's not a good thing. So, <laughs> so I have to ask, is there any other thoughts on the micro-purchase threshold? We're almost at the, we got about a minute left in this segment. It's making it more chaotic. I think the 25, 10,005, I mean, it's already hard enough on government right. buyers. I mean, it's just like, well, wait, what am I doing? Which one am I buying from? Why am I buying from this one or so, the other one? Yeah. Soon it's going to be 25, but only on a Tuesday and only well, when it's raining. you're wearing purple 10, socks, you know. Yeah, yeah. Which I'm not wearing today, by I the way. I think last week... Um, the Defense Procurement and Acquisition Policy Office put out their uh, de- deviation uh, implementing the new micro-purchase threshold, and there's actually even more than two. There, for any number of re- like for, for contingency contracting, there's one right. for de- uh, continental United States and outside of the continental United States, and there's a num- there are a number of them. There, there was a whole list on this on this thing, so it, it's actually much more complicated. So you kind of need if you're a, you need a chart like in your office, like a big like with like yeah, a, a right. color coded chart to track all the different thresholds here. Amazing. Um, okay, guys, we're we are up on the break. Um, when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about just the concept of competition that you know that that's in the report and and since it's the last segment, where do you think things are going as we go into this next phase? You know, do you have thoughts about, you know, what should be examined? I think we've laid out a pretty good framework of some of the key issues, and we'll do that when we come back. My guests today are Angela Stiles from Bracewell LLP, Jonathan Erney from Shepard Mullen LLP, and John Etherton from Etherton & Associates. And you are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Today, my guests are Angela Stiles from Bracewell LLP, Jonathan Erney from Shepard Mullen LLP, and John Etherton from Etherton and Associates. We are continuing our discussion of Section 846, the e-commerce solution provision of last year's NDAA, and we're sort of not not in the middle of implement. We've just sort of started the journey 
of implementation with GSA's implementation plan, um, and they're entering into phase two, which is a lot of market research. And I think we'll talk about what those next steps are. But first, as I we were, you know, breaking from the last segment, I mentioned the concept of competition, and I don't know what you guys want to add about that. But there's all kinds of different sort of flavors of it. What is it in this context? What it isn't it? And what does it mean for the government and for industry? So I'll just open it up. I'm happy to kick it off. So what what I found interesting is that the legislation and GSA's discussion about the legislation stresses that by virtue of having a lot of choice, the the process becomes inherently competitive. But but to me, and I'm curious the reactions of my co-panelists here, but to me, that misses a big part of the question. Just you still have to ask, well, how how does the government purchase? Just because there's a lot of choices, does the government have to purchase the, the cheapest one? Does the government have to make a best value decision? Does the government have to get look at three of them and make some sort of decision? Like Unless we know that, by saying there are multiple options, I don't see how that renders something competitive from a purchaser's perspective. Well, and I think it's interesting that from the very beginning, if you looked at the earliest drafts of the legislation, the presumption is that any, any purchase that is done through the e-commerce portal is by definition meets the requirements of competition. Um, which, and if you really think about it, and to pick up on Jonathan's point, the, the process that is foreseen in the Competition and Contracting Act, where you've got a process that mandates certain ways that offers have to be solicited, that you have the, the ways that you <clears throat> compare offerings, um, you know, notification, conversations that you're allowed to have, compare that process with the process of purchasing off an e-commerce portal. It's a very different process, I think. And, and it, it, it was interesting to me, as I said from the very beginning, that just the presumption was if it flows through that process, it's competitive and, and no further conversation needed. Right. Well, but the, the, in the, you know, that was the original language. The ultimate language, SICA, still applies. Right. Except right. that they, the proposal to raise the micro-purchase to 25000 which SICA said doesn't apply anymore, right? Angela, right. And I, I think it's a question of what is the definition of competition and how much of it do we want? I mean, I think what you guys are saying is exactly right. If you think of an RFP or an RFQ process in the federal government, I think we all know what the parameters of competition look like in that. Um, and I think there is a level of competition we assume when we go to an e-commerce portal as a consumer, right? You get five different things. You can choose which one you want. You can choose how fast you want it to get to you. But it doesn't really, actually. Just because the search engine pulls up five different products at five different prices with different delivery schedules, right, and um, doesn't mean that that's actually competition. doesn't mean you're comparing exactly the same thing to each other like you would in a true RFP or RFQ process. Um, and that's what we need to figure out, right? I don't think you should assume that the e-commerce portals out there are truly competitive because those are algorithms that can be manipulated and changed and put up whatever they want you to see on there. Right. So so, well, so where do we go from here with – I mean, do you, the, I think to the point about increasing the micro-purchase threshold to 10000 if you raise it to 25000 just to get back on that point, then you don't – you're not – worrying about competition in the sort of traditional classical 
You can just go down the street to the store, right, any store, and just pick it up off the shelf, even if you wanted to buy a car, right? You could just go down to the car dealer and buy it and not have any composition if it's raised to $25,000. Well, you can actually, not only that, but I think you could not only walk down to the store, but you could buy the worst, most expensive product. Yes. And it would be fine. Yes, it would fail and not have a warranty right. and might right. be counterfeit, right? And still be the most expensive yeah. one. Yes. Right? So I mean, when, when we talk about competition, I think I think probably there are three ways of looking at the goal of competition. Probably more than three, right? One is is choice in and of itself. Just competition, you'd think, would, would give some choice. At least that would be one of the goals. One would be price, right? Price reasonableness. You hope competition gets you that. One, the one that I always focus on is value, which I think is far more important than price. And then you probably have, you know, accountability, transparency, things like that, too. But but competition, the way it's described here, doesn't necessarily get you all of those. Right. I, I think you have to ask, what is your form of competition getting you? Right. Well, fundamentally, it's 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 no it's the competition. It's. It's almost like you're doing your market research and then picking and not having the inter- the communication back and forth between the parties about I'm going to buy X amount these you know this is the quality I want not you know you you know that but you're not asking people to respond to that. You're making all of the choices yourself, right? Right, right. You're not actually dependent on the competitive pressures of the marketplace. You're you're doing all of that research and you're making a decision and then right. just picking one without any interaction. Right. And and we're willing to do that at a certain level because we've decided that the 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 costs are are, are not high and the and the benefits are are high, right? But to Angela's earlier point, the micro purchase threshold goes up, you have to reassess that cost benefit trade off right. on on its on the impact that the competition would have had. Or even just look at the total acquisition cost, you know, for this uh, system. I don't even know how you would figure that out, but you would need to get a good sense of are you actually saving money in this context or not? I mean it's not I mean speed is important, but is does this lend itself to you know, actually saving the government money over the long term, like reduce, you know, compa- pressures to reduce prices or increase value. Right? This is what we've been saying. This is what we said at the last panel discussion. This is what we said at the panel discussion before that. And the key phrase that GSA uses, I think we all agree with, which is balance, right? But you have to do exactly what you're saying, Raj. You, you, this, these plans, all, all three and a half of them, will will get you advantages, but they all have costs as well, and and. And I suppose that GSA's answer is, well, that's what we're going to figure out in phase two, right? But we'll see that those costs have to be balanced. If, if we're just making it easier to purchase, but we're violating all these other policy initiatives that we have, then we haven't made a good decision. Right. John, do you have any thought? Okay, so he, Jonathan brought up phase two. Do you have thoughts about you know, where GSA sh- you know? needs to go, what what they ought to be thinking about with regard to phase two. I know they've got to do a bunch of market research and talk to folks. Um, yeah, I well, I, I expect that a lot of the issues that Jonathan's brought up are going to have to be addressed in that phase two report. I, I mean, I think, honestly, the phase one report, I think, I looked at it as sort of an unfolding of here's all the issues that we think that are out there. Here's the way we intend to think about them. Here are some authorities that we think we need now to sort of create a pathway for us to move forward, there it is. And and I think, what does it all mean? 
um, what's the reality that we have to match all these things up to, I think that really has to start coming in phase two. Right. I think they have to go out and talk to disinterested companies, right? So you can have an industry day, but everybody that shows up and everybody that submits com- comments is going to be an interested company, right? Sure. They need to talk to those commercial companies out there about how they are buying. What are they using e-commerce portals for? How are they doing it? I just didn't see enough of that in the report or the industry day, and they are going to have to go out and knock on those doors. So, Angela, do you think the legislative proposals that as you know, are premature – I think they were premature. I mean, I do. This is a really unusual process in terms sure. of mm-hmm. our access to GSA's thinking, their willingness to talk to the public about what they're doing, how they're doing it. I think um, they may have some second thoughts after they go forward and do additional research. I mean, it's good to have a lot to think about and a lot to talk about early on, but it may have been a little early. Jonathan, any last thoughts? Yeah, no, I agree with Angela. I, I think it, they could turn out the proposals are exactly right, but mm-hmm. but it, it does seem premature to be making them and before you've done the cost-benefit analysis. And John, for you? I think, w- number one, I think we're going to be able to see the degree to which the proposals have resonated with Congress. Um, the House and Senate Armed Services Committees are marking up their defense authorization bills for FY19 in a couple weeks. So we'll see sort of what what uh, resonance they, they got with those. But, yeah, I, 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 it isn't clear to me why the authorities are needed now, given right. the way that the phases are, are going. Into, unless there's an argument there, which I maybe haven't heard or don't understand if I did hear it, that by having these authorities in place now, it sort of opens things up to move in a direction or maybe move it more quickly than otherwise would be the case. Right. So I want to... It was great discussion, guys. I really appreciate it. Thank you for coming. My guests today, Angela Stiles from Bracewell LLP, Jonathan Ernie from Shepherd Mullen LLP, and John Etherton from Etherton & Associates. And you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at federalnewsradio.com. Off the Shelf only on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com.